0: I want to actually ask you, David, if you could briefly present the case you were telling me about this morning of the patient with a ruptured HCC. I thought that was pretty interesting. Sure. This was about 4 in the
1: morning, and I got a call from the emergency room doctor at one of our community hospitals saying they had a 62-year-old man in the emergency room who woke up late in the evening around close to midnight with the worst abdominal pain of his life and called 911, went to the emergency room. His blood pressure was 100 systolic, and he was mildly tachycardic at 110 for his heart rate. And they, of course, drew blood work. And then on his physical examination, he had a mildly distended abdomen that was tender. And the emergency room physician rapidly ordered a CT scan that showed a previously undiagnosed liver tumor that had ruptured. And he had about a liter of free blood in his abdomen. And he had called me and asked me if we should put him on the helicopter and send him to our main hospital. But it was fortunate that we had opened a branch of our liver cancer program at this hospital a year previously, and it was fortuitous. I actually had a patient on the schedule at 7.30 that morning, a different patient for an elective liver resection. I said, no, don't send him on the helicopter. Call the OR, and I'll be right in. And I saw him in the emergency room 20 minutes later, and we had cross-matched some blood that the emergency room doctor had sent. I took him up to the OR about 6 in the morning and did an emergency right hepatic lobectomy. He had early cirrhosis. He had bridging fibrosis and undiagnosed cryptogenic cirrhosis that led to this peripheral 5-centimeter right lobe hepatocellular carcinoma. But this is all unknown to him. All unknown to him. He, he was perfectly no history, healthy right. to that He had point. no risk factors. He was not an alcoholic. His hepatitis screen was negative, and he had no risk factors. And when I saw him in the emergency room, an alpha fetal protein that was elevated at around 4, 450, and did the emergency liver resection, washed out his belly with a liter of blood. He did well and went home five days later, and he did well for about two months, and then the alpha fetoprotein protein started climbing, and on triphasic CT scan imaging, we could see a few sub-centimeter blushes in the remaining left half of his liver, the left lobe, and we debated, but it was just about the time that Nexovar was available, so we put him on oral Nexovar, and... The alpha-3 protein had climbed, it had normalized below 10, and then shot up at 20, 30 range, and we put them on Nexavar, and after four weeks of Nexavar, the AFP half down to 16. So we're seeing a response, certainly if he develops and we're scanning him, our protocol is every three months, CT scan and alpha fetal protein. And if he develops evidence of progression with visible growing liver masses, then we'll activate chemoembolization into that left lobe of the liver as the next phase of treatment. I mean, obviously a ruptured HCC has a terrible long-term prognosis. But this is a pretty healthy man, and his, even though there's mild cirrhosis in the liver, his liver function's normal. I think that he has enough hepatic reserve to tolerate treatment for hopefully several years. How is he doing on the serafinib? Doing just fine, not having any side effects or complications
0: from it so far. Alan, have you treated any patients with serafinib? With we have.
1: Again, this may be
2: selection bias. We have treated a handful and, no pun intended, have actually had horrible skin toxicity at least based on the early returns in the patients we've treated. The SHARP data, I would suggest, understates the skin toxicity, but it may be reflective of just who we happen to have treated. Again, the interesting thing from the SHARP data is there are really no responses to speak of. This appears to be static, which may really accomplish plenty in patients like this. Again, too early to know just whether the toxicity is... Understated, or ours is a bad experience. You know, how long are you going to treat this patient?
1: Well, nobody knows. I think we'll base it upon imaging and alpha-fetoprotein, but certainly the plan was four cycles, month-long cycles.
2: Right, and it's interesting. This is stylistic. You know, I wouldn't chase this with chemoembolization in somebody who had a ruptured HCC where the peritoneal cavity is at great risk. I would personally, with cryptogenic cirrhosis, again, just style. I probably wouldn't do chemoembolization in this patient. I know that that's what's done in some centers, but we probably... So if he
1: recurred liver only and there was no evidence of peritoneal disease, what would you treat him with?
2: Well, failing serafinib. It depends, I guess, on how his liver regenerates and all. I think if he fits the criteria for taste at that point, you know, maybe taste, but I think... Inherently, my real concern three or four months from now is that he'll have other sites of disease. I mean, his prognosis
0: is very poor. Lewis, what do we know about cryptogenic cirrhosis and its relationship to HCC?
3: I think one of the things that's of concern, areas of concern to many hepatologists is the association of cryptogenic cirrhosis with fatty liver disease and the fact that as a nation... We have this incredible obesity epidemic. I mean, if you look at the rates of obesity in the 70s and follow through on a yearly basis through now, we've had an incredible rise in rates of obesity. We know that obesity is associated in some individuals with inflammation in the liver, with the position of fat in the liver, and then subsequently inflammation, and people can get cirrhosis from that. One of the things that's not clear is what the relative risk is for developing an HCC when you have fatty liver disease causing cirrhosis versus if, for example, you have hepatitis C. I think the early data suggests that the risk is lower. On the other hand, we have a much, much larger population at risk of fatty liver disease. And so that's a significant concern, actually, that epidemiologically, as we are seeing, in the United States, really the tail end of a hepatitis C epidemic. You know, the incidence rates of hepatitis C have dropped, and if we give ourselves the 30- or 40-year lag between having hepatitis C and developing cirrhosis and cancer, we are going to be seeing a downturn in the rates of cancer due to hepatitis C within the next 5 to 10 years. On the other hand, we are just seeing the foothills now, we think, of obesity-related cirrhosis and liver cancer, and it may turn out that after we are done with C, the big worry will be obesity-related, what we call today cryptogenic cirrhosis, that then becomes a significant cause and risk factor for liver cancer. Can you distinguish that from NASH? That's NASH.
2: Right, and so is it only obesity-related? It is I, thought pre- it related. I thought it was in and out Burger-related.
3: I uh-huh. thought it was diet-related. I think it's predominantly obesity-related. I think that's a reasonable... It's clearly not everyone that has NASH is obese, and so there's multiple risk factors there. Lewis, could you
1: comment? We hear more and more about this metabolic syndrome Uh and the association with diabetes, obesity, and cardiac disease and I saw a lady a month ago who came labeled with this diagnosis of metabolic syndrome and it's hard to know. I mean they're all bad diseases to have, but do they just synergize to cause worse liver disease and eventual liver cancer?
3: Yeah I think you know one way of thinking about it is that diabetes is an expression of the metabolic syndrome. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in some patients is an expression of metabolic syndrome. So, for example, cryptogenic cirrhosis is associated with diabetes. And it's been shown recently that in the United States, diabetes is an independent risk factor for HCC. It gives you about a two-fold increase the risk of HCC. So these all hang together, and I think they'll prove to be an important epidemiologic risk for HCC
0: Getting back to your case, how often do you see a ruptured HCC, and what's going on there that that occurs? It's pretty rare. Given that we see about 350 to
1: 400 new hepatomas a year, we probably get 10 to 15 cases a year ruptured. In the community, it may be one case a year that the emergency room or physicians will see. The risk factors would be a exophytic or subcapsular lesion so a tumor that is growing out of the glisson's capsule distending the capsule of the liver typically a golf ball the baseball sized lesion that is near the surface of the liver or growing out of it those are the ones that tend to rupture not a small tumor that's buried deep inside the liver we also see a subset of women with benign adenomas of the liver that are notorious for rupturing, these are typically women age 20 to 40s that have a long standing history of oral contraceptive birth control pill use, and the estrogen in those birth control pills lead as a mitogen or stimulus for adenoma growth, and sometimes when they come in, you can't differentiate. Is that actually a ruptured adenoma or a very well-differentiated hepatocellular carcinoma, but the treatment's the same, urgent or emergency hepatic resection?
0: So this patient, I guess, is on the new wave of people receiving Nexavar. Alan, maybe you can review basically what was presented at ASCO in terms of the SHARP study looking at serafinib.
2: Sure. So this was a randomized phase 3 study that looked at serafinib versus placebo in patients with child's PUA liver disease and hepatocellular carcinoma. So child's PUA patients essentially have normal liver function or virtually normal liver function. The patients were stratified for, I think, macrovascular invasion performance status. What was presented was that 900 patients were screened for the study and 600 participated. So randomization of about 300 in each arm which is interesting because at least in our program, two out of three patients would not have been eligible for this study. I think these are very fit patients with HCC. Probably that's because I'm a medical oncologist. I think this is more surgeons and hepatologists would see patients like this, and that's largely who I think accrued to this study. This was a European study for the most part. The randomization was serafinib 400 BID continuously versus placebo. There was an interim look, and in fact, the study was closed early because it was a planned interim analysis, and the serafinib group did far better than the control. The endpoints were progression free survival, time to symptom progression. Overall survival dramatically favored serafinib, I think 10.7 versus 7.9 months, which is very meaningful. Remember when you have a study that has a significant p-value. It could be because the experimental arm is really effective, or it could be because a control arm does really poorly. In this case, a control arm did quite well, much as you'd expect, even a little better perhaps than you'd expect for these patients. So this is a very meaningful finding. The toxicity was quite tolerable. I think, I forget, maybe 10% of patients had skin toxicity, a little of diarrhea, but really not much to speak of in
0: toxicity. Kind of looked like what we'd seen with renal cell.
2: Right, I think very similar to renal cell. A couple of curious findings that need to be fleshed out in a manuscript, and in fairness, I think the data that's been released, this is an early look. They haven't had a chance to massage the data yet. One of the endpoints was time-to-symptom progression and they used an instrument, a quality of life instrument. It's very, I think, very difficult to use quality of life instruments in this population of patients. It was interesting, there was no difference in time to symptomatic progression. And in fact, patients could stay on study until either they had radiographic or symptomatic progression, and patients in both arms are treated about the same duration of treatment, I think 23 versus 19 weeks even though radiographic progression was twenty-four weeks in the seraphnum group and twelve weeks in the placebo group. So some curiosities, I think, things that need to be explained a bit. The one issue is who the patients were. Right. So these are very fit patients by definition. And I'm interested in Lewis's take on this. Less than half the patients had underlying hepatitis. A quarter had alcoholic liver disease and a quarter had other liver disease. And at least in my practice, that would not have been even remotely representative of the patients we see. I think not taking anything away from the results, a very important finding and very profound results, I am a bit concerned about how the patients with hepatitis, for example, are going to tolerate this treatment. They may get more benefit for all we know, but I think that's a cautionary
3: message I have.
0: And can you comment, Lewis, on the child system and how these patients fit in and Alan's question of what you might expect when people are a little bit sicker?
3: Yeah, and no, I think Alan is exactly right in that the child system, again, is a way of grading severity of liver disease that's based on five factors, the albumin, bilirubin, prothrombin, time, encephalopathy, and ascites. And what this study did was select people with the best liver function. I think in both arms, less than 5% of the patients had child B cirrhosis, and there were no child C patients in the study. And I think the question about time to symptomatic progression, I wonder personally whether that relates a little bit in part to the fact that there were patients with underlying liver disease. Fatigue is a common symptom of liver disease, fatigue tends to be a side effect of the receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors generally. And I think one question in many people's minds is whether this issue of time to symptom progression not being different relates to the fact that patients on serafinib actually perhaps had increased fatigue. And so in terms of symptoms, the patients on placebo progressed and had more symptoms. Patients on serafinib had fatigue from their liver disease, and maybe didn't feel as good as one would have expected from people who are responding to a therapy. So I think that that's one of the questions that will be interesting to see when the data... Although it's
2: interesting, time to symptom progression was 23 weeks on the Mm serafinib arm and 19 weeks on the placebo arm. If, to me, as I looked at it, if there's a serafinib fatigue effect, I might have expected there to have been symptomatic progression earlier. Uh But I think at the end of the day, I'm not satisfied that any of our quality of life instruments are particularly good for this population of patients. As important as it is, I think we're really groping in the dark for a meaningful quality of life instrument. But in any case, that was at least how I was looking at it.
0: I want to get more into this issue and use a case, actually, of Dr. Henderson to sort of explore this issue of management of patients with child's B. But I also want to ask Alan about the NCCN committee for, about a biliary tumors. When I went on the website, it looks like you all are changing, and you're on that committee. How are you all thinking through these new data in terms of your clinical algorithms?
2: Right. So I think there's no question but that serafinib is a standard for patients with child's PUA and the algorithm will reflect that. In a variety of the branches that you take, serafinib would be an appropriate treatment. I think the struggle is whether patients with HCC and non-child's PUA should be treated with serafinib. Clearly, there are no satisfactory alternatives to serafinib. There is a little bit of data in patients with child's PUB And so at least the working discussion with NCCN is something to the effect that it could be considered for patients with child's PUB, although there is really not much data to support it. The FDA has the package now, and I have no doubt that they'll approve serafinib for child's PUA. They will be presented the opportunity to approve serafinib for child's PUB based on a small data set remains to be seen what they'll decide. What's the exact definition of A, or what precludes
0: you from being A, so, right. so patients,
3: clinicians know? It's a point system, and you start out on each of those five categories, you start out with essentially normal tests with a one point, and then depending on the degree of change from normal, so for example, with the albumin, I think it's above 3.4 is normal, and then 2.8 to 3.4 would give you... So if you're normal, you have one point. two point eight to 3.4 would give you two points, and then less than 2.8 would give you three points. And the same then is true in a similar fashion with the other variables. And so if you have five to six. If you score five or six, you're a child A. If you score eight. To seven, seven nine, eight or nine, you're a seven B. Seven to
1: nine. And if you B. score a 10 or above, it makes you a child right. C.
2: So just the presence of a ascites, for example, you've got six points on child's pew, so any of the other factors, an INR that's high or a low albumin. So it is important to note that in the SHARP trial, there were a handful of patients who were child's pew A who had high bilirubins because just one point, one sort of aberrant of the five child's pew categories isn't enough to catapult you to child's pew B. So there's a few patients with high bilirubin in the SHARP trial, but just a few. To me, the real issue with the child's pew B patient is in the patient with a high bilirubin. I think the this is a drug that has at least some hepatic metabolism. There's some data in a study that's been done by CALGB looking at serafinib in patients with organ dysfunction, where there's really a lot of toxicity with serafinib in patients with high bilirubin. Maybe apples and oranges, it may not be relevant. It depends on why they had high bilirubin. There are a variety of issues. But that's the main concern, I think. So the other factors of Child's PUA versus B may not be relevant for using the drug, but I would personally worry that the bilirubin may be a factor.